And in addition to welcoming all of you, uh, I'll remind you that there are historian, history enthusiasts all over the world who actually watch the recordings of these programs online, and that our banner lectures are only possible because of the support of the Richmond Times-Dispatch and Virginia Historical Society members, many of whom are in the audience today. And if you enjoy these programs and are not a member of the Virginia Historical Society, I'd encourage you to consider supporting them by joining us. It's easy to do at our website, www.vahistorical.org. And now for today's program. Thomas Jefferson devoted himself to building the new American nation as well as Monticello, his plantation home. At Monticello, he managed his sizable farms, designed the house and its surrounding landscape, and selected art and furnishings. Today's speaker will discuss how the extensive Coolidge collection of the Massachusetts Historical Society has influenced the understanding of Jefferson and the ongoing restoration and interpretation at Monticello. The key drawings and records of the private Jefferson exhibition upstairs and that which is left in Massachusetts. From Jefferson's first elevation of Monticello, the Declaration of Independence, and catalog of books to his designs for curtains and a plow demonstrate the range of his actions and interests. Susan Stein is the Richard Gilder Senior Curator and Vice President of Museum Programs at Monticello and carries a very large business card to carry that title. She was trained as an art historian at the University of Chicago, where she also did graduate work in American history. Before coming to Monticello, she headed the Octagon Museum in Washington, DC. Susan oversees the curatorial and restoration departments and has been involved in the comprehensive presentation, restoration, and interpretation of Monticello since 1986. She pretty much lives and breathes Monticello. She grew up in an 18th century house outside of Philadelphia and had no idea that an early visit to Independence Hall would have such a long and lasting effect. Susan was the project director for the interpretive elements of the Rubenstein Visitor Center at Monticello, four exhibitions, and the film Thomas Jefferson's World, which you can see here in this theater when we aren't doing banner lectures, uh, through the run of the Private Jefferson exhibition. She's co-authored several books, including Thomas Jefferson's Monticello and Monticello's Guidebook, and contributed essays to museum catalogs and journals. She's now planning several exhibitions, including one about Jefferson as the person who planted the arts in America. So please help me give a warm VHS welcome to Susan Stein. Thank you so much. I am so happy to be here in Richmond among so many people who were willing to give up Saturday morning to talk about Thomas Jefferson. Thank you, thank you all. And it has been a great pleasure for all of us at Monticello to work with Andy and his team a little bit um, about this exhibition. So what I think Andy has very well summarized what I plan to do this morning. And I want to get started by saying that Thomas Jefferson is the central figure of the American Revolution. 
he epitomizes the aspirations of his era as well as its failures. Hundreds of books, 103 Amazon pages, in fact, attest to Jefferson as architect, botanist, astronomer, gardener, gourmand, wine expert, farmer, founding father, diplomat, lawyer, scientist, and slaveholder. Many of these books share a common thread, ex exploration of Jefferson's role in building and shaping the nation that he helped to found. Still more address various aspects of Monticello itself. Today, I'm going to focus only really on the private Jefferson exhibition to describe how this major collection of documents and drawings has revealed aspects of Jefferson and Monticello to us that have helped us understand, restore, and restore Monticello. And I hope that some of this will be new to you extraordinarily well-informed Virginians who know so much about Jefferson. But I want to start with how this collection went from Virginia to Boston. And here's a smattering of these of these of some of the things contained in the Mass Historical Collection. Um, a, about 400 repositories around the world own Jefferson manuscripts and drawings. The Mass Historical Society holds the largest chunk of these drawings, and here's why. Um, uh, they have notebooks, um, drawings, and letters that he created in his domestic life, um, and Jefferson bequeathed, Jefferson, you remember, died in debt on July 4th, 1826, and his family was left to pay $110,000 off. And a sale on January 15th, 1827, netted, um, I think, about $35,000 from the sale of his furnishings and his slaves on that cold January day at Monticello. But the, the, his papers were left to his executor, his oldest grandson, Thomas Jefferson Randolph. And Randolph used them. They became the basis of uh, the earliest publications about Jefferson, including Randolph's own memoirs from the papers. In 1848, so 22 years after Jefferson's death, Congress authorized $20,000 to buy Jefferson's papers from Randolph, who was still paying off Jefferson's debts. And the government, the, some of these uh, papers were in Williamsburg with an editor named Henry Washington, but all of them, uh, of the all the papers went to, or many of the papers, went to the went to Congress. And they divided, uh, it was actually the State Department that, that did this. The State Department divided the papers into two groups, political and private. And they were supposed to send the private papers back 
but they didn't do that until 1870. So they had them between 1848 and 1870. And finally, the family got them back. And the family in Virginia was not in good uh, financial shape. They went from descendant to descendant. And finally, uh, they landed in Boston with Thomas Jefferson Coolidge in 1898. And he was the um, son of Ellen... Randolph Coolidge. She was Jefferson's favorite grand granddaughter, uh, lived at Monticello, and married someone named Joseph Coolidge, a businessman in Boston. And they were the wealthiest members of the Jefferson, of the extended Jefferson descendants. So they, um, it was, it was Thomas Jefferson Coolidge who gave this collection of about 9,000 documents to the Mass Historical Society in 1898. And more were added in 1911 and uh, 1937. So you see Thomas Jefferson Randolph here at left, um, Ellen Randolph Coolidge, and her son Thomas Jefferson Coolidge. So now I'd like to get right into what what you can see upstairs and a few things that you won't see upstairs. Um, first, the Declaration of Independence. And I'm talking about, I want to mention this because we all know Jefferson's seminal role in, in, uh, in, our, in the founding of our country. And we are very fortunate in the show to be able to see a handwritten copy of the Declaration, but not the version that was published by, published by John Dunlap at Wright. And we think probably that Jefferson owned a copy, that, fir that first, pu first published version of the Declaration, but we don't know where it is. This is another one. In the society's in the society's collection, and then you're also seeing his handwritten document. The his original rough draft is at the Library of Congress, and below this is a desk, and this is the desk on which he wrote the Declaration of Independence. It's one of the most it's the most one of the most important um, icons of American history. It's in the National Museum of American History at the Smithsonian in Washington. And the point that I want to make here is that Jefferson was both politically and artistically creative. So not only did he draft this significant political document, but he also designed the desk on which it was written. And it sets the stage for what some of what this exhibition has to say to us. And Jefferson, according to Benjamin Henry, Henry Latrobe, the architect, was the person who planted the arts in America. And when Latrobe wrote, the works already erected in this city are the monuments of your judgment and of your zeal and of your taste. He was referring to the buildings of Washington, D.C. And Jefferson, by the way, had such an important role in shaping the look and design of Washington that I'm going to say that we could call it Jefferson. 
you're supposed to laugh. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that I want to change the name of Washington to Jefferson anyway. Okay, so, uh, so Jefferson was very, very important, but there was no building in America that was of more consequence than our own state capital. And Jefferson had in his mind the idea that he wanted to, to secure the future of the country that he had helped to found by, by creating a, a lasting civilization. And he believed that a way to create a lasting civilization was by creating its monuments. And he wrote, um, in fact, he said, you see, I am an enthusiast on the subject of the arts, but is, it is an enthusiasm of which I am not ashamed, as its object is to improve the taste of my countrymen, to increase their reputation, to reconcile to them the respect of the world, and procure them its praise. So Jefferson is an enthusiast on the arts. And in this show, you will see his, the, his uh, drawings for the Virginia State Capitol. And the inspiration of this was the Maison Carré, the first century Roman temple in the south of France at Nîmes, which he knew through publications. He had seen, he had seen an iteration of this Roman temple in Palladio's Four Books of Architecture, but he also knew it through the architect Clarisseau who helped him with the design of the capital. So there you see it. And, it. and what was driving him was what he wrote to James Madison in 1785. How is a taste in this beautiful art to be formed in our own countrymen unless we avail ourselves of every occasion when public buildings are to be erected or presenting to them models for their study and imitation. So this is Jefferson literally shaping the face of public architecture in America. And he does something else in this building that is little known and or not, not so well recognized. And that is, he, he, since he believes that public art is a way of establishing the American civilization and creating an American identity. He is deeply involved in commissioning and securing the commission of the standing portrait of this um, of Washington that's to be the centerpiece of the Virginia State Capitol. So while Jefferson is living in France for five years as minister between 1784 and 1789, he gets this underway. He oversees every aspect of it. And he designs a place for it in the Capitol that is um, that Washington is the center, but he has niches for portraits of other important Americans. And that in itself is a revolutionary idea. It's really the first time that there is a major public presentation of America's historical figures. So um, keep that in mind. So that's another thing that he does at, at the um, at the Virginia State Capitol that you can ferret out from looking closely at his plans for it. And, and 
it the capital becomes um, well known. It really what Jefferson wants to achieve takes hold because this is a this is um, a drawing by Latrobe of the cityscape of Richmond, and you can see how dominant the um, capital is in in this beautiful image from the Maryland Historical Society. And artists pay attention to this. So uh, the design for the capital reverberates architecturally in too many, in numerous public buildings across America. But artists also pick up on this. And this is William Strickland's um, painting of a temple on a cliff. And so other so artists are capturing this Jeffersonian idea and um, and sharing it with the uh, public. Jefferson does something else at about the same time that this exhibition suggests to us. Uh, while Jefferson was serving in Paris, he secured portraits of important Americans and others that we'll get, get to in, in a minute. And when he departed for his assignment as minister, leaving Philadelphia in 1784, he had a copy, he had Joseph Wright um, uh, make a copy of Wright of another portrait that Wright had done of George Washington. And he takes this with him to France with the express purpose of installing it there so that people, so that the French people will come to know George Washington, our noble leader. Um, he later commissions um, other portraits. The reason that I have these two, um, the, the Lafayette and Jefferson uh, called out in gold or yellow is because they're portraits that survive at the Mass Historical Society, and you can see them in the show. But he also, at this um, early time, commissioned all the other portraits that you see here, one of Thomas Paine, of John Adams, and of Benjamin Franklin. So in Paris, he was well on his way to establishing a consequential collection of American, uh, of American uh, portraits. And he believes that it's important for American artists to portray American historical subjects. So he's encouraging this uh, while he's in Paris. He also acquires oh, um, 57 other works, um, copies mostly of, of old master paintings, which he exhibits in Washington while he's president um, in Philadelphia on his way to Washington. He, I mean, as Secretary of State, he's exhibiting them there in the 1790s. They're in Washington with him while he's president from 1801 to 1809, and then they're all back at Monticello. Um, he also, while in Paris, commissioned um, uh, portraits of America's discoverers, and he thought that these were also consequential, and the one that survives that, uh, uh, at the Mass Historical is that of Christopher um, Columbus. And you're probably wondering, what happened to all the other um, artwork? Well, 
After he died in debt, most of the artwork was shipped to Boston where it was sold in two different sales, the latter one in 1833. So we've been trying to track down these copies of his, of his art collection um, since 1923. And we've had some success, but much of the, many of these have disappeared. He also had um, three portraits. I just want to mention this as an aside because it sets the stage for some other things that we'll look at. He had the three people that Jefferson called his triumvirate of worthies were Francis Bacon, Isaac Newton, and John Locke. And these were principles in his Enlightenment universe. And this universe, this Enlightenment world, that he inhabited was driven by his belief that human knowledge, that knowledge and reason could improve the human condition. And he was, as you all know, um, an avid reader. He said that he had a canine appetite for reading. Um, and he established his own library, which was the largest private library in America in his time. And he not only had all these books, but he organized them into categories. Sort of a, it's the Jefferson precursor to the Dewey Decimal System, but much more sophisticated. And he divided things into memory, reason, and imagination. And his, his library of about 7,000 different titles was divided into those three big categories and then into sub subsets. And you can see this manuscript in the exhibition. And there's also a great explication of it on the, um, on the monitors that the Mass Historical has created. Um, Jefferson's great only published work was the notes on the state of Virginia. And these notes on the state of Virginia, the manuscript is in the Mass Historical Society. It was his responses to a series of questions, really um, questions about, the, about Virginia, about the United States of America. And Jefferson responded to these questions posed by a man named Marbois, who you see, um, see, who you see here. And by the time he was in France, he was ready to publish this. So the first published edition of this is in France, but the first um, big edition is not until 1787 when John Stockdale publishes it. But here, you can actually read his notes. And uh, this book has never gone out of print. And it is a thought to be a, a highlight of the American Enlightenment thinking. And it is certainly worth, um, worth looking at his notes and seeing how he answered these questions. At Monticello, his books were displayed. And so how do we know what books were at Monticello? Well, it's because we know about his, uh, the, his inventory of books and his organization of them. And his book room contained the bulk of this library until 1815, 
The Capitol was burned in 1814, and he sold, then sold, his books to Congress. And you see at the bottom right a contemporary exhibition at the library that you can go and see tomorrow uh, that contains the editions and the volumes that actually were Jefferson's that are still at the library. And it's been supplemented by this when in the case, there was also a later fire at the Library of Congress. So some of these titles have been supplemented by identical editions if Jefferson's were lost. But a surprisingly high number of, of his volumes actually survive. Um, and speaking of books, um, his knowledge of architecture came from books. And the first book that he pub that he is said to have acquired was James Gibbs, and it's at left. And this was um, exactly as you see a book, uh, a treatise about um, how to uh, how how American or how builders could learn from the past in designing the buildings erected today. But no book was more influential to Jefferson than the architect than the four books of architecture of Andrea Palladio, 1508 to 1580, the great Venetian architecture who designed buildings in Vicenza, in Venice, and really throughout the Veneto. And from Palladio, Jefferson learned about classical architecture and the orders of architecture. And he also studied Palladio's villas. And this is the Cornaro, which became the basis for Jefferson's first design, which you see in the exhibition. And um, we cannot um, overemphasize the importance of this drawing in our understanding of where Jefferson began as an architect. And in an exhibition that we have at Monticello called Making Monticello, we have uh, printed this drawing as a poster and have laid on top of it particular features from Palladio that Jefferson copied and incorporated into this early design. And you see that um, at the top left, the chimneys were to be made in the form of Palladio's Doric pedestal. And you see um, exactly that pedestal at left, the Palladio drawing and the chimney. And similarly, you see um, these ionic columns are also taken from Palladio. And Jefferson developed his own uh, system of architecture based on Palladio. We used it to create a model of the first Monticello. So to, as a refresher, um, Jefferson began building Monticello in 1769 when four slaves, two enslaved boys and, or men and two enslaved women were hired from another plantation and dug the cellar at Monticello in 1769. So, 
And we know that, by the way, from the collection at the Mass Historical Society. There's a notation about that. So we use the information about the building and the draw from the drawings to create this model. But the building that Jefferson began in 1769 was never finished. So it never really appeared like this. But when the, Mar when the Marquis de Chastelou visited Monticello in 1782, he said that Jefferson was the first American to have consulted the fine arts to know how he should shelter himself from the weather. Um, Another, another, there are two things that I'm going to show you that are in, illustrated in the show that describe the changes at Monticello that were so important to the building that we now know. And that was uh, the two features that I'm going to talk about are the L-shaped wings and the dome. And here is Palladio's plan and elevation for the Villa Saraceno, which is astonishingly like Jefferson's early plan from the 1770s, showing what he envisioned at Monticello. So in the 1770s, this isn't the at the center of the building. Center, you're not seeing it as built, but you're seeing his an early idea for the central block of the house and the two wings. And it took Jefferson 40 years to get those wings erected. And this is um, a, um, a plan and elevation that Robert Mills drew for Jefferson that shows the, the expanded Monticello, still the, the wings. And this was drawn in about 1803. So it's not really, not really as it was complete. And this is Jefferson's drawing that you'll see upstairs that is his new conception of the Monticello plan. And this is one of my favorite, absolutely favorite drawings, because he's done it on architectural paper that he bought in France. It has his notations. And it's very much a work in progress for him. And I suggest that you see the, there's a great animation that's in the exhibition that we worked on at Monticello that shows the shift in design from Monticello 1 to Monticello 2. And it features this drawing and the new entrance to Monticello. So this is what he did in 17, in the seven, beginning in 1796. He expanded Monticello. The white plan that you see at the top is the old Monticello, Monticello 1, and all of the gray area is his expansion of it. And it shows that he used the old outer walls to form one side of two new passages. He retained the bow-shaped parlor and the tea room um, and the, the bowed ends and the parlor and adds on to the other side of the house. And that's the house that we see, that pretty much that we see today with the um, completed wings. And these wings are ingenious because what he's done is submerge them, unlike Palladio, who puts the, at the Villa Saraceno there at grade, at 
Monticello, these are four feet below grade. So he's able to use, these become what he calls the wings, the workspaces he calls offices. He puts a terrace on top of them and thus expands the living space of the house. And that's the terrace today. We're going to talk about that a little later because it's different. Anyone see the difference? I, is there no volunteer here? <laughs> okay, we'll talk about that. Okay, so in Paris, what formulates the changes, that some of the changes that you see? Jefferson's five years in Paris, he's completely um, uh, uh, stimulated by the new, new, ne new neoclassical buildings being erected there. At left, you see the Hotel de Somme. In the middle is the grain market, the Alloblé, and then the Pantheon, or uh, as it's known now, or Saint-Geneviève. And he was there while these buildings were brand new. So when he came back to the United States, he wanted, he decided to change Monticello. And he says something that I find so amusing. He says, nothing, nothing is more simple than this structure. He's referring to the dome. And it is so cheap that it is used for barns in France. A very coarse and uninformed carpenter is making mine who never heard of a dome before. It's the only way of framing a dome so as to give its hollow to the height of the room. This nothing could be farther from the truth than nothing is more simple because it took us at Monticello when we were creating a model of the dome uh, two weeks to do the, to do the um, calculus to figure out how the ribs should be placed. So. But his inspiration is the Temple of Vesta that you see at left. He goes to a lot of trouble to figure out the, the math, and he does all the math himself. And, but the structure of the ribs, he looks to Philibert Delorme, French uh, Renaissance architecture for the, for the, to calculate the ribs. These are some of his drawings that you will see in the show about how this was done. And, Mass Historical retains three building notebooks that record his notations for the construction of Monticello. If you look at right, a sort of top, little bit down from top right, you will see that he carries his notations for measurements to, <clears throat> to the thousandths of an inch. Sometimes he carries them five decimal places, not just three. And there isn't a builder that we've ever laid eyes on who can do more than probably a tenth of an inch, maybe. So this is just um, a bit, um, it's a bit excessive, let's say. Um, and then here's the dome as it's constructed. So its shape is derived from the Temple of Vesta, but its construction is derived from Philibert Delorme. And then there are other things that Jefferson adds to Monticello that we wouldn't know about but for, the draw but for drawings and correspondence. One of those features is this spherical sundial. Another um, that's documented is a Venetian portico outside his cabinet and, and, uh, uh, and study. 
And then there are actual objects. In addition to the paintings that we looked at earlier, the Mass Historical Society owns one piece of furniture that came from Monticello, and it's an octagonal um, filing table uh, that you see here installed in the book room at Monticello. He also drew library steps that we're working on now. So we'll, we'll, if you come next June, you'll see, see them. And then there are lots of things like chairs that we knew that he ordered. The Windsor chairs have not survived, but or this particular order. And in fact, there are no surviving Windsor chairs from about 90 different chairs that Jefferson ordered. And, but we've made a, our interpretation of one of them based on the drawing that is in this letter. And um, I dare say that there isn't another founder who has taken such care and been involved so intimately with his house as Jefferson. There, he, not only does he design the building, but he also is designing its curtains. His wife, you remember, does, died in 1782 after, he says, 10 years of uncheckered happiness. And Jefferson just is absorbed in every detail uh, of Monticello, including what its, what its curtains should look like. And here are two of four different sets of, of drawings for curtains at Monticello and how we've deployed them at Monticello to inform our restoration and furnishing. And then you also see in there the portraits of the discoverers as they were hung at Monticello. Um, we also have learned a lot from Jefferson's memorandum books, which are published. And there's a page um, in the show that describes what Jefferson bought on the day that, the, that Congress approved the declaration. Uh, hats, he bought um, gloves and a thermometer there from Sparhawk's store. But this is, I want to mention just quickly that, a, that Jefferson research has been much enhanced recently by the access to digital resources through the Papers of Thomas Jefferson project housed at Princeton that's publishing the papers until up to the, uh, through the presidency, and then the retirement series that we're publishing at Monticello. And all of these, including the memorandum books, and much of what you see in the exhibition are online. So you can easily access these things and have and study them your, yourself. And, uh, and we put all of this information about what he's bought and when he bought it, um, we've deployed in our refurnishing of the house. Um, in a letter to John Trumbull, Jefferson asked Trumbull to buy Corinthian-shaped col columnar Corinthian candlesticks for him, and, and lo and behold, the candlesticks have survived with a descendant, and we have the little document at Mass Historical showing what uh, Jefferson wanted. 
And then there are other things at the Mass Historical Society that will make the basis for a great exhibition that we're working on about called Thomas Jefferson Fashioning the Arts in America. And this is another Jefferson design. So you know about him as an architect. You know about him as a designing as an interior designer. But he's also designing things like this um, coffee urn and gardens, of course. I am not discussing gardens, and I, have, I regrettably did not include images of the University of Virginia, some of which you can see in the show, but want you to understand that these drawings resonate not only in, like, inside the house, but also outside the house with the gardens. And we've made, and one of the most important documents is one that Jefferson drew in 1809. He was a surveyor, and he made plats of Monticello, his 5,000-acre, eight-mile plantation, often. And this one is particularly important because it describes the network of roads at Monticello. And we've used it to reinstate the dotted diet red dotted diagonal line that you see the kitchen road that was that survived until the early 20th century and then disappeared um, but you can't believe everything you read so when we are studying the landscape and find plats we also do archaeology so that we can see whether or not his plans were actually carried out. So this is some archaeology underway that determined that indeed the kitchen road was had been there as well as a path between the kitchen and the vegetable garden. And this is, you're looking now at Monticello as it was a few months ago. Um, since we reinstated the kitchen road, which you see at the, I'm going to try and show this to you here. I'm afraid I might, let me see. Okay, so the kitchen road is right here. This is Mulberry Row, and that is the site of the kitchen path. Too steep, and the kitchen is back there. Too steep for us to just have a path, so we have um, steps. And if there are any Garden Club of Virginia members here, I want to thank the Garden Club for helping support this project. Um, and that is another image um, showing that, showing that uh, kitchen road to the right. One of another key document at Mass Historical is this application for insurance that Jefferson completed in 1796. I know it's very faint. I don't, I don't, it's not in the exhibition, but I wanted you to have another example of, vivid example of how we've used this material. So at top, um, you'll see these little rectangles that are keyed with letters, and below is a description of those rectangles, and they are the buildings on Mulberry Row in 1796. And we have used them, coupled with archaeological research, we have created 3D 
digital renderings of all of the structures on Mulberry Row. So now we know what that looks like. And these are individual buildings that were on Mulberry Row. They were erected in the 1790s. They housed many members of the Hemings family who were domestic workers and artisans who worked on Mulberry Row or needed to be near the house. And you see at the bottom, in the red rectangle where these buildings were located on Mulberry Row. And we recreated one of them where we think that John Hemmings and his wife Priscilla lived. John was an enslaved man who became the head joiner after the hired white Irish joiners left in 1809. So they, this were, they were important people at um, at Monticello and members of the 70, some 70 person Hemings family that stretched over four generations. Um, we're working right now on the reconstruction and restoration of Jefferson's stable. Um, the two stone cells that you see here survive, but that wooden wing does not. Um, this is underway right now. It's much more advanced. And if you come in at Christmas, you'll see this building completely restored with an exhibition inside it that describes the evolution of the stable at Monticello, the importance of horses at Jefferson, bit about Jefferson as a horseman. He was an accomplished rider, rode every day of his life. Um, until the last year of his life, when he was 83. Um, we also are doing a historic structure report right now on the textile workshop, also on Mulberry Row. This housed um, hired white workmen when Jefferson was building the first Monticello, enslaved people after they left, and then more hired white workmen, and ultimately was a place where Jefferson created an industrial domestic industry where weaving, carding, and spinning took place, all in an effort for him to create a self-sufficient um, plantation. We also know that he his one, one, I think really his only invention was a moldboard plow. And there's a drawing of it in the show. We made a model of it that appears in our exhibition at Monticello. Another something else that I want to talk about before I close is the farm book. At Mass Historical is a document that, uh, that Jefferson kept for about 50 years that records the, the activities, every, every possible kind of activity related to the management of, of the plantation. And for example, this page in 1796 describes the wheat harvest where the enslaved overseer, Great George, George Granger, was assisted by 18 cradlers, 18 binders, six gatherers, three loaders, six stackers, and two cooks and four carters. 66 people in all working on that wheat harvest. 
from the farm book, we have derived a huge amount of information about the Monticello plantation. And Monticello is the best studied and best documented plantation anywhere because of Jefferson's record keeping. We know a lot about who he owned, when they were born, and when they died, thanks to it. And we have, we've, we have created what we call the slave database and have identified 607 people owned by Jefferson during the course of his lifetime. And here you see some of those names. These were featured in the, an exhibition that we did at the Smithsonian a couple of years ago about slavery at Jefferson's Monticello. We've also used this information from the farm book to create an app about Monticello. And it's, um, I encourage you to download it. We're going to be adding more to it uh, this in the next year. We also have a website, a great website, that talks about the plantation. And a great deal of this information is derived from the Mass Historical Society records that Jefferson, uh, that, uh, uh, that uh, kept so well by Jefferson. And now, before I really do end, I want to show you some images of Monticello as it appears today, things that are underway. So if you haven't been there in the last few days, <laughs> there's, more, there's more to see. So anybody notice anything different about the West Front here? Clue, the columns. They were white. They were white. They were painted white. 20 times or 22 times after Jefferson died. But what Jefferson had was a parged surface, this sort of stone like, it's, they're meant, this is a parging, it's a, like a rough plaster tan color that was meant to look like stone. So this is how Monticello was intended to look. We have the right colors there because we've been doing paint research. And the actual parging there, about 70 or 80% of it, is what Jefferson's workmen installed in the 1820s. So th this is exciting to see that. We also no longer will have a Chippendale rail because we found that there was no evidence for it. And it uh, a restoration architect in the 1930s thought that it was a Chippendale rail. Jefferson drew it, but what he actually built was this um, picket fence. And this is the North Terrace um, showing that green rail, which fades very handsomely into the landscape. But you need to come and tell us what you think about it. And it's documented in four different drawings from the 1820s. This is one of, one of them. And you can see the pickets on the far right, but in the, on the south wing terrace. But um, on other drawings, the pickets are a dark color. So we've chosen a green that matches, that's a documented green to the um, exterior blinds. 
And then another thing that I recommend you come and see is the upstairs. This is one of those two narrow stairs at Monticello, and they will take you to two upper floors that we have never, we just recently restored and, and furnished. And you will see Martha Jefferson Randolph's bedchamber with um, things that she retained from her time in France. You will see where some of the grandsons lived. You will see the restored nursery, the dome room. At the bottom right here, is the cuddy where the two adult granddaughters created a private space for themselves modeled after Jefferson's cabinet. They had space for reading, writing, and reflecting there. And then in the nursery, which was adjacent to Martha Jefferson Randolph's room, there's um, there are some original furnishings that have been passed down in the family, but there's also a cradle, oops, and that cradle is derived from notes that Jefferson made about an order for a cradle in the 1770s. So we've realized this thanks to these surviving documents. And what we're working on, I had the pleasure of talking to a few people before the talk, and they said, what are you working on? And what we're working on now is a reinterpretation, restoration, and refurnishing of Jefferson's private suite. This is his cabinet. It's going to change in May because we're adding green. We've done paint paint and wall and paint investigation and have found evidence of green wallpaper. So we will be putting green wallpaper in that room. We'll be adding a bed screen because it we there's um, physical and documentary evidence for it. So this will all change and I hope will inspire a visit. Another project that we're taking on is the restoration and and interpretation of the South Terrace Wing. That's the South Pavilion at left, the oldest, sec well, the oldest brick building at Monticello. Dates from about 1770, and it's where Jefferson lived with his wife, Martha, after they were married. And, um, and on, but it took to close the circle a bit on what we've looked at in the past um, hour. Uh, that is the South Terrace that was completed in 1809, but that Jefferson envisioned in 1770. So what was in that out chamber, Jefferson's one chamber with a kitchen below, ultimately became a wash house in the 1810, about 1810, when the South Wing was completed and functions from Mulberry Row could shift from Mulberry Row to um, the South Wing. So in closing, I want to thank you for um, being such a great audience and to remind you that everything that you see upstairs is realized in what we're doing at Monticello to accurately, to accurately and comprehensively present 
the Monticello that Jefferson knew. So thank you very much. I hope that we can take a few questions. Thank you. Thank you. Your last picture there, could you just describe who each one of those people yeah, are? We I know will. one is Thank the granddaughter, you. but I don't know who the others are other yeah, than Jefferson. Um, the, uh, thank you. I will. Um, let me get the pointer here. This is um, Martha Jefferson Randolph by Jefferson's daughter, um, born in 1772, lived until 1836. This is her daughter, Ellen, Ellen Wales um, Randolph Coolidge. This is the old, Jefferson's oldest um, grandchild, who is uh, Anne Carey Bankhead. Her, she died early. Her um, husband moved to Alabama. This is, uh, uh, this is a, a Jefferson grand, grandson. This is Edmund Bacon, an overseer at Monticello, whose, um, whose memoir of life at Monticello was published in, I, uh, uh, by James Baer in the 1970s and is an important account. And, uh, and he, his name often appears in the records at the Mass Historical Society. This um, is Isaac, Isaac Granger, and he's one of a few enslaved individuals associated with Monticello for whom there is an image. And this image is in the collection at the University of Virginia Library. And Isaac was a blacksmith at Monticello who was freed at some point, moved to um, Petersburg and worked there. And his account was taken by a man named William Pearson. And the, the accounts of Bacon and, um, and, I, and, and Isaac were taken down um, and, and recorded. And, that, and so there we're now, we know about them. Uh, question for you, please. Yes. Uh, you mentioned uh, the 66 individuals who were involved with uh, harvesting wheat, right. as an example. Right. Have you found records on the way that, that uh, a mill might have been built? Yes. Um, in fact, thank you. That's a great question. Jefferson, I, um, uh, Jefferson had a mill on the Rivanna. Um, and we know a lot about the milling operation and its difficult and its financial difficulties. But um, I, I do have, if you're interested, um, give me your card and I'll give you a citation for an image of that mill. And only a very um, small bit of it um, survived into the 20th century. Yes. that he had 
with very important people. Is that so? Well, that's a good, that, uh, that's a very good comment. And what we know is that people said that about, said that about him. And what he had was a good deal, or he tried to encourage privacy both in the president's house and at Monticello. And he had a revolving serving door at Monticello. And the way that we think things worked is that there were entrusted uh, people, that there were um, uh, people who set up the room and put out the food before the um, guests were called. And we know a lot about how the space was used. And it he, I think, um, probably didn't like people being present. And the dumbwaiters, um, their tiered shelves like um, etagères on wheels, and people could put their dirty dishes on them. And it was, I think it was probably both that he used the dumbwaiters because it was what was done at small dinner parties in France. So I think it's more than privacy. It's, you know, it's probably um, a certain casualness and his disdain for formality and because he preferred, I think, Republican simplicity, um, a more um, down-to-earth, less hierarchical way of living. Does that sort of get at that? Yeah. I guess about 50 years ago, I was, uh, I taught at, uh, at UVA. And uh, at that time, they were making some repairs on the Monticello project and painting the second floor. A large chunk of the ceiling had fallen. And being a structural engineer, they wanted me to go investigate it and find out why. Uh, I might just preface this by saying that I was told that the building was one of the most famous and income-producing uh, monuments in the country. Do whatever is necessary to make it last forever. So. <laughs> Uh, I was surprised when I got there to look at it that the ceilings and the second floor had sagged three or four inches. Mm -hmm. And when I dug into it, I found that there were bricks laid in the right. on the just above there. Obviously, right. the weight of the bricks right. was causing that to happen. Do you have any comments on that? Yeah, um, I'm I'm excited that you have a memory uh, that you have a memory of this. Um, uh, in 1954. Uh, and I, um, I, I'm not sure about that. Your visit must have been much after 1954, right? Or, yeah. So, in 1954, they had a major project that added HVAC to the building, installed a lot of ductwork, and removed the brick nogging from the ceilings on the first floor and second floor. But um, I'm not sure what you did, what you did or observed then. The ceilings in the second floor are in very good shape now. Um, I occupied one of those spaces for quite a while, and it had a little bit of sag in it, 
but I think it's in I think it's they're largely in good shape now. Yes, I'd like to think I'm a little responsible for that because we had to feed some long steel beams through That's the it. entire attic area. That's right. And actually had to jack up those ceiling beams. So I, I can assure you they're strong now. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. We, uh, it, it is very stable. And there are only, I think, you know, there are um, the brick nogging. And the brick nogging was bricks in between the ceiling and floor of the space that was meant to contain fire, but it was very heavy. And that's what um, this um, engineer is referring to, is, is that we needed to, remove, needed to remove that. Yes. Uh, I had a question and, and a comment. The, the question re re uh, revolves around his financial problems at the end of oh. his life. Obviously, he was a big dreamer and liked doing things in a big way. I guess that caught up with him. But if you could just briefly talk a little bit uh, about the financial difficulties. And the second was a comment that uh, I don't know how many people here were as horrified as I was that uh, uh, a number of faculty and students at Mr. Jefferson's university uh, didn't like uh, the fact that the president quoted uh, those folks. Maybe they ought to move to Berkeley or something. <laughs> huh. Now, let me take the, let me take, uh, uh, let me take the first part of your question, remind me it was, Oh, financial. Yeah, that is actually, I was so taken aback by the second part of that. Anyway, the first, uh, we're often asked that question. There are, that's one of the most frequently asked questions at Monticello about why did Jefferson die in debt? He inherited debt. Uh, he inherited debt from his wife's father, from John Wales. He accrued his own debt. He, uh, he uh, in, within, oh, I guess, like five years of his passing, he agreed to stand for a note for his son-in-law's, for his grandson's father, Wilson Carey Nicholas, which added $10,000 to the amount of money that he owed. But essentially, the short answer of this is that there was a depression in 1819, and Jefferson outlived his resources. Everything kind of went bust in 1819, and he had land, but the land really didn't have much value, and he was not really able... It, being a planter was not really profitable for every for any anyone at this time. Everyone was struggling, and Jefferson, I think, entertained a lot. He had constant visitors that really contributed to his expenses, but just keeping the plantation going was expensive. And last, uh, I. Uh, I cannot say that I have a direct connection to the University of Virginia. We work together. Uh, my husband is a law professor there. And we all think that Jefferson should be quoted, quoted at, at there as a point of discussion. Um, and I think that we, I think that the, if uh, Sandy Gillum is here in the audience, 
can he might be able to speak to this as well. But Jefferson is part of a discussion, and engaging with Jefferson means engaging with Jefferson's ideas and his times, and we think that that's essential to do. if there was any kind of relationship between Thomas Jefferson and Lafayette. There was, uh, there was uh, so much uh, of the French influence going, and Lafayette extended so much influence he, of, of French culture here. And did uh, Thomas Jefferson take, adva uh, take advantage of that opportunity? Uh, great, great comment. I, uh, I have written about Jefferson in France, and I think that France, the um, uh, Jefferson left America as minister to France, but he really returned from France as an ambassador of French culture, because so much of what he wanted to achieve in America was inf inspired by what he had seen in France. Lafayette, to get to your question, was an, an intimate of Jefferson. They saw one another in France, um, had a sustained correspondence for decades, and Lafayette famously visited Monticello and the fledgling University of Virginia on his triumphant return tour to the United States in 1824. So there's a lot about that. And, and Lafayette was a friend of the family. In the recently restored Martha Jefferson Randolph room, we have a rosette um, that we've made that we think was like the one that um, Lafayette gave to Martha Jefferson when she was living in France, and Lafayette gave her really a souvenir of the revolution brewing outside when he presented her with this little um, blue, white, and red rosette, symbol of the revolution. So yes. My question relates to the debt. I heard an argument um, at Highland, now, yes, now right, Highland, right. that James Monroe received from the federal government money um, be after the federal government had seen what had happened to some of its earlier men like Jefferson who were in such debt. Um, and Jefferson never benefited from that type of conversation, but James Monroe did, I think like $25,000. That, that's a great, again, a very insightful, good comment. Um, when Jefferson was employed, that is, until 1810, everything was good because he was earning money. But he spent everything that he earned. There was not a, um, the salary that he received was to cover all of his expenses at the president's house, for example. When he was in France and acquired 
the furnishings um, and outfitted his house at the Hotel de Langeac, it was entirely at his expense. And he, that was counter to how other countries treated their diplomatic corps. So you're absolutely right that he, right then in the 1780s, had some very extensive um, purchases made that he thought he was going to be reimbursed for, but never was. So that contributed to it, too. Well, thank you so much. You've been a great crowd. <laughs> <laughs>